Welcome back to Ebology, everybody. I am your solo Professor Ricky. That's right. Ethan is not here this week. He is out at a conference learning about how we can use the power of friendship as an alternative energy source compared to things like wind and solar. Because as we all know, students, the power of friendship is eternal, everlasting, and seemingly is generated out of nowhere and is capable of incredible things. So the world might be better for it if we were able to harness that level of power. But that gave me a little bit of time to think about what I would like to do a solo cast on. And it kind of hit me that there is a, a type of media, a genre of media that we don't typically talk about. We do here and there, but it's not Ethan's favorite. We talked about it's not necessarily he doesn't enjoy it. It just really doesn't have the same effect, the cathartic effect that it does for me. And that would be horror. I love horror. I think it's a very fascinating idea that when people consume media, it's typically geared to get some kind of emotional reaction, be it, you know, laughter, sadness, you know, feel good times, feel bad times. But the idea of all of these pieces of media is to kind of can and or get a emotional response, a very specific one out of its audience. And I've always found it interesting, and probably one of the big reasons why I'm enamored by it, is the idea of canning fear into a piece of uh, media and trying to enlist fear, which I think for humans, we have done everything in our power to remove ourselves from things as base as primal fear of, you know, bodily harm and, and loss of life and things like that. But I, I love the idea of that cathartic feeling of getting scared, be it horror shows, horror TV, horror games is a bit much for me, I will admit. I've played a couple in the past from things that are more actiony like a Bioshock or things even more uh, subtle like, you know, things like PT, Observer, Silent Hill of the past. But nowadays, I really enjoy a good scare via uh, watching a movie or TV show. And in the past, actually back in college, I did a paper on this exact topic. But I think it would be fun to do a little deep dive into the differences between Western and Eastern, specifically Japanese horror. Now, there are a lot of similarities that when I redid this research, there are more similarities than I originally thought way back when I did this first deep dive for acad truly academic purposes. But I, I think that now that I have revisited this topic, I'm going to be going over kind of the hallmarks of Western and more specifically American horror movies and horror television shows, the things that kind of uh, linchpin that flavor of horror, and then kind of take it over to Eastern, more specifically Japanese horror, and how that differs from the way that uh, America and Hollywood has really served horror up uh, to, a, to the audiences from the cultural context of both. And I'll be using some very famous examples, and I'll be coming back to a lot of the ones people probably know and love, but it's originals, not its westernized counterparts. So let's start with discussing some of the overarching archetypes and things you'll find in these you know, cultural buckets of horror. Now, again, there will be examples in both to counter all of these linchpins that I'm saying. We're just kind of going over the high-level trends to start. So when it comes to American horror, 
violence is a huge component. Showing on-screen violence either at the forefront as the purpose of the movie or as a prominent tool to shock and scare its audience, uh, it's, it's kind of always there. And it always has been there since, I would say, the 70s onward. The idea of you know, bodily harm being the forefront of a lot of American horror I think is indicative of a lot of the horror movies products of the time from the, you know, the conservative movements of the 80s showing like the, the teenager flick where a bunch of teenagers will go out by themselves somewhere secluded, you know, do a bunch of do a bunch of freaking drugs and a lot of illicit activities. And because of their choices to go out and do that, some outside force like a serial killer or a psycho comes in, murders all of them, basically saying, told you you shouldn't, you shouldn't have done drugs, kids. You shouldn't add premarital sex, blah, blah, blah. So a lot of this stuff, the first tenant I always kind of look at when it comes to Western versus Eastern is in Western, there is always this kind of idea of an outside force, a foreign entity intruding upon a what is considered safe, be it the space, be it a time, forcibly kind of breaking through a perceived barrier in that way. And I'll give some examples of that. But also it could be those individuals that we are following breaching into an unsafe space that is historically unsafe. The, the former, you can you know go pick any slasher flick, right? Uh, Halloween, Friday the 13th, right? Um, even something like, um, I don't know, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street is, is a great example. All of these cases that these perceived things that are safe, the the fun time of kids running around in Halloween, everyone's having a good time or, you know, summer camp that those that perfectly nostalgic bucket in your mind of this perfect bubble that was your way at camp had, a, you know, some of the best formative teenage memories and even something as intimate as your dreams. You have these killers, Mike Myers, Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger. They forcibly break into those spaces. And the, the real key point that we'll kind of drive home later is that the protagonists or the, the points of uh, you know, reference or viewpoint that we're witnessing, the main characters or the core group, did not invite that in in these cases but in the other cases where they either tread on unhallowed ground or they enter a space that is inherently dangerous supernatural or otherwise they're almost always warned that they should not be doing this right there's the hills have eyes um i think i'm thinking of like even paranormal activity all or a lot of you know, movies that center around demonology and, and stuff like that, where they are inviting some foreign, hostile, known hostile uh, entity into their space, or they're going where they're told said antagonistic force, said, uh, you know, dangerous entity is existing. And despite knowing that information, they do it anyway, and horror ensues, right? In both of these cases, it's either they knew about 
the they always almost get warned you know the, the trope of like the old person you stay away from the house at the end of the street little center or the monster will eat your face and guess what they're like screw you old lady we're we're you know you're just an old hag i'm gonna go and do it anyway face eaten oh every time face eaten or the idea is that you know they are like oh let's play ouija boards hey isn't it like with our ouija board isn't that a problem isn't every time you play with a fucking Ouija board a problem? Culturally, everyone in the Western canon knows you don't fuck with Ouija boards, right? And guess what? Someone fucks with the Ouija board, it fucks back, okay? So in all of these cases in a lot of the Western canon of horror, you almost always have some force intruding on a safe space without the consent or known consent of and of the individuals that are our point of view or they can actively consent to intruding on a space that is known to or they have been warned about being malicious spooky uh face eatingly scary right now eastern and asian slash japanese horror movies on the other hand they have a different approach that often is more slow paced atmospheric there's it's much more psychological and a lot of these element the antagonistic forces here is less about a a forced intrusion from the outside more so the corruption of what was always safe or the absolute consent of bringing something into the safe space that has been at one time deemed safe, but it in and of itself became corrupted. Now, I know what you're thinking. Ricky, you're just fucking mincing words at this point. That sounds like the same thing. There is a key difference here, and I will be coming back to a couple of these examples all throughout this kind of deep dive, but Ringu, 1998, remade in America, The Ring. Now, this is a very interesting case study of J-horror because in that movie, if you are not familiar, which I would be shocked if you aren't even not as, an or as a horror fan, but The Ring it tells a tale of a single mother who is raising uh, their child and comes across a cursed videotape. When watched, you will receive a phone call that tells you you will die in seven days, and in seven days' time, uh, a little girl, Samara, or whatever the fuck her name is, I can't remember at the, at the moment, something like that, will crawl out of the TV and uh, enact the curse on you. You drop dead and you make a funny face. Now, the only way to alleviate yourself from said curse is to get somebody else to watch the cursed videotape and you're safe, but the next person is now afflicted and it goes and goes and goes. While you may on the surface be thinking, Oh, but she crawls out of your TV. She is forcibly entering your home. It's a bit different than that because of a couple reasons. One, it this represents kind of a cultural, you know, zeitgeist of the time of this turn of the millennia fear of technology, technophobia that was very real in kind in Japanese culture and it still is pretty prevalent today. If you notice, this curse is all very technological based. You watch a VHS, immediately get a phone call. You then have your TV is now a source of evil. What was once 
consensually brought into the home and deemed safe the TV, the phone, the HSs, this technology is now been corrupted by a choice. You have chosen to watch this tape. This person did not know about the curse on the tape when watching it, at least in the story that we see. And then through research and finding and tracking down clues, finds out the choice is then to pass on that corruption to someone else. It's very, very interesting that while in America, that you have a killer just bust your door down with a knife and said, here's fucking Johnny, get rocked. No, no, no. In, in this prime example and in many others, the source of corruption is something that has already been deemed safe and is already inside of our sphere of influence becoming corrupted. And you see it in a lot of other cases like The Grudge. It isn't about the, you know, the intrusion of spirits in The Grudge. They are imbued in the home itself. The safe space is the, is the corruption, is the antagonistic force. So there is a almost like the best way I can describe it. It's a bastardization in Japanese horror of what a lot of people would already deem to be their safe space, their safe objects, you know, and that's really kind of this first key difference in both where one is a unconsented intrusion of that space or a queer negligence on the individuals to invade a space that is not safe of their own peril and their choices are their own ruin in a lot of J horror and Eastern horror. There is not this clear cut divide between choice was made or this other thing is making a choice rational or not to commit these heinous acts of horror. It's a lot more subtle. It's a lot more. This is being corrupted. And a great example I go to that isn't a movie or TV show but Junji Ito's Uzumaki, one of my favorite pieces of horror fiction of all time, truly. The idea in that story is this town is slowly being taken over little piece by piece from the inside over the obsession of spirals, a shape, just a shape. And it turns into this twisted nightmare that warps, literally and figuratively warps the town from the inside. That sleepy little town that was at the beginning seemed quaint, peaceful, safe, is being corrupted by something from the inside rather than being invaded upon from the outside. Now, there's a bit more to it in, into, you know, Uzumaki. You know, if you want to go and read that, I highly recommend that you do so. It's incredible. But that's my first kind of split here is American horror. It's very staccatoed, this attack from the outside. Whereas, you know, Asian and Japanese horror is this subtle, quiet burn of the corruption of once was what was once safe. And I think that really kind of leans itself to the, you know, staccato terror of American horror that uses violence, jump scares and is designed to shock and scare you in contrast to Japanese horror and Asian horror, where it's much more subtle quiet it creeps in it's dread dread to me is one of the hardest feelings to capture in a piece of medium 
the one that makes you kind of sit there and think about it days after. And it, it's almost like a little bit of like an earworm of horror. And, I, and that's the kind of stuff that I'm here for. I love that stuff so much. So what are those kind of things do we, we see as, as a compare and contrast? I, I would say the type of antagonistic force flavor. Um, this is not more how they get in or how they affect the world around you, but more what kind of thing they actually are. You find very few. Some, but very few, serial killer slash thrill, like slasher flicks in the Japanese J-horror space, and almost all the time is it supernatural and spiritual in nature. Now, this shouldn't shock some of the more veteran students, but what, what we can really kind of glean from this is that while in Western and American horror, all the ones I've listed before, like Halloween's, even things like Scream, Silence of the Lambs, Misery, Hush, stuff like that, these are all centered around killers, that it's kind of a likely uh, cultural fact that Americans believe that we are the true monsters and capable of pretty horrific things, but they use horror as a commentary and reflection on, you know, the, the horrors that humans us to each other can inflict and i think there is a uh, in a history of western horror that has been used as a societal mirror to talk about and bring to light and have conversations about so, like social and cultural movements in japanese horror it's very much you know the supernatural because that's where a lot of these superstitions and a lot of these, you know, uh, horrors lie as it pertains to what people tell things like their kids and folklore and things of that nature. And I, I always find it interesting that there are so, so, so many more ghosts, like the percentage wise of ghosts and supernatural flicks in Japanese horror, because I think that is a cultural representation up to a certain point of what scares people, like where true fear comes warding off evil you know that evil being uh something much more intangible and if it does originate from humans it's almost always a emotional reaction an emotional amalgamation right um we, again i want to keep coming back to ringu that they you know in that movie in the original 1998 they they actually call out that it is a vengeful spirit and it is uh, so full of hatred by how they died that it projects that hatred into the objects and curses them. Notice how it's not saying that she, the woman, the ghost of the woman, is in and of itself residing in the tape. They, they claim that it is the hatred of the woman that resides in that tape. In The Grudge, in June on. There's basically like the angry, the anger of the spirits ran so deep that it placed a curse on the home itself. That is another big distinction where you have, you know, Jason Voorhees and Mike Myers are fueled by psych psychosis or by rage in and of themselves that fuels them to commit those acts in Japanese and J-horror. You have the emotions of an individual places the curse. It is the emotions that cause the supernatural 
rather than not always, but in most cases, not the the spirit in and of itself, right? So you you have more supernatural on one side of the fence and a much more, you know, the the hor- the horrors of man on the western side. But they they kind of leads into another thing about religion. And again, it's like I don't want to bring religion into my podcast, but there is a very interesting usage of religion in both sides of the fence here. In America, obviously Christians like symbols such as like crosses and Bibles are, are often used to do the warding of the evil, right? I think it's, you know, you see it in The Exorcist, obviously, is a great example. If you don't know what The Exorcist is, I would say watch it, but it, it can be a rough watch. It still holds up today. Um, it's, it's basically a great example of how American movies use religion to frighten people. And that's the key thing is how both of these things use religion. In The Exorcist, there's a, you know, a young girl is, present, is possessed by a demon, and the only way to save her is through an exorcism. This is very fascinating because in a lot of uh, exorcism movies are rampant in horror movies in the Western canon. But religion often serves to be the solution to these problems. And they, while they are also used to explain the problem, the you know demonology is used to represent oh you know your 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 daughter is possessed right the it goes one step further and the only way to save the individual or to save the day or to right the situation is to use religion it's very it has insane moral ties to obviously a western christian ideology set in core beliefs but asian and Japanese horror often use religion to explain that is that which is happening in front of us. Let's take the ring you again, once again. When I said the vengeful spirit of the woman, it is known as an onro. And an onro, I think I'm pronouncing that right, is a literally defined entity in, you know, in the religious canon in Japan. So when it goes so far as to explain these things, but nothing can stop this vengeance, this, the spirit's vengeance from placing these curses. Nothing you can do will make it right. And the only way to avoid it, like I said, is to pass it along to somebody else, right? That it's the, the religious aspect of these films are oftentimes used to explain, but there really is no running from it. Whereas in America, in the horror movies on this side of the fence, religion often serves as the solution. And that is definitely born from the era and the ideas that, you know, uh, it's a kind of a commentary on at the time where religion is, you know, Either it's a tongue-in-cheek, which I've noticed in some of these movies, that saying religion and like an exorcism, aka religion at large, is the corrective measure to take to rectify this horrific thing that's happening in front of us. It's either a 
very uh, <laughs> not so subtle message, religious messaging, or it's a tongue in cheek idea that using religion to fix may often not be like the case or using religion is solely as a way to rectify things is not the answer, as is the case with a lot of exorcism movies that where an exorcism is attempted and it fails or someone else who is. I'm thinking of Constantine, which is much more of an action flick, but rooted in, uh, you know, I, a religious iconography that the the religious acts performed by those seen prominently religious outwardly fail. But when performed by someone who is very morally ambiguous and gray has much more of a prominent effect. So it's often an interesting commentary in the Western culture as it pertains to modern uses of the ex of the exorcist or, you know, like uh, purging demons, so to speak, where the, the religious rites are the thing that needs to happen. But the individuals that are doing it is what the actual behind the scenes commentary is, is happening here. So religion is very fascinating as it pertains to horror in these cases. Um, in a lot of other ways, Another element is morality, as I think where religious aspects in American and Western movies are seen as the solution. And the cautionary tale there is very clear. What a lot of them are trying to say is by venturing down darker paths and straying from what should have been always the right one, quote unquote, um, this is where the horror comes into being. While both Japanese and American horror like to tell cautionary tales. I think from what I've seen and what I've kind of researched, morality is more of a strong way that Amer that uh, Japanese horror films perform this kind of cautionary uh, storytelling. There's oftentimes a linkage of how people, you know, treating others with respect, the usage of karma in a more secular term, what goes around comes around, right? Um, there is a film that I watched a while ago, and I think it was a Thai film called uh, Shudder, and it is uh, kind of a story of a woman and uh, her boyfriend, who's a photographer. Uh, they're like driving down, and the young woman accidentally hits the girl on the road, like hits a little girl on the road, and uh, she tries to get out of the car, but her boyfriend forbids her from doing that and tells them to drive away, leaving the little girl to die on the road. So soon after, in I, what I would consider at this juncture, American storytelling would have that little girl haunt the woman that hit her with the car. But in this story, in Shudder, the, the boyfriend, the photographer boyfriend is being haunted, noticing shadows and weird distorted faces in his photographs. The girlfriend comes to the conclusion that it's the captured image of the girl they ran over. And she is haunting them, but primarily she's really haunting the boyfriend. So in, the, in that case, the, the commentary there is it isn't the primary issue here is not that she hit the little girl with her car, but the boyfriend made the decision to do nothing about it. Now, that is a very, to me, a very interesting commentary on you know, blame and uh, morality is that, you know, the accident in and of itself could be, oh, you hit this little in American in an American telling of that story. 
oh, you hit the little girl. Now she's haunting you because you hit her. Right. But in this story, that haunting falls on the person who made the morally bankrupt decision to not get out and help the girl when the girlfriend wanted to. It's intent. I always found that very, very interesting. And that is a common split that I think a lot of uh, a, a lot of Western horror movies would probably go down the traditional route of actions beget consequences, whereas West, like Eastern and Japanese specifically, in this case, it's, it's Thai, but the decision, the intent implies consequences. So that is a common that's a common shift there as well. Outside of intent, another com- another thing I noticed about uh, you know some differences in Asian and American horror movies are are common differences in setting. I've noticed in America specifically, a lot of horror movies are often sent like uh, set in small towns, rural areas. Stephen King is the master of this. These sleepy northwestern main towns, harbor towns that you know when when out of the prying eye of these mass public areas, you this is where a lot of horror can be found. I think there's an isolationist message in a lot of Western horror. If you notice this common trope of, I think The Shining, right? The fam- American family unit moves out to the middle of bumfuck nowhere, and you know that has the double whammy of, of staring at a hotel where uh, <laughs> it's buried, it's on a buried Indian ground, which again, they were told this. They did not heed the warning of something so religiously, you know, awful that they had done. They, they, this cardinal sin of trying to capitalize on Indian burial grounds. That's another clearly common trope in American culture of com- like colonialism and shit like that. But I, I think the idea of isolationism for the groundwork for a horror story in the Western canon is a pretty common one. Uh, I think, you know, the uh, having the hopelessness of, you know, no one's coming to help is a very easy way to, uh, you know, set up a lot of horror based situations. And when the danger inflicts that little bubble of safety, there really is no other bubbles to reach out to in a lot of cases. Um, Obviously, it's America is a very large country, a lot of open space. And I think it plays on the idea that there's just so much space and there's some unknown elements from the average citizen, like in rural bumfuck nowhere, no one knows what could be out there. And you see it in like a shitload of movies, right? Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, The Hills Have Eyes, The Strangers, Last House on the Left. Maybe not that last one, but you get what I'm saying, right? Middle of bumfuck nowhere. And uh, you're you're cut off by either your own uh you know your own fruition or the the actions of someone that you know your parents force you as a teen to move out in the middle of you know nowhere or shit like that um when you're that idea of being cut off from resource cut off from the other safety bubbles that you'd have access to it's pretty uh, pretty effective if used in the correct way i'd say they like to you know confine hauntings to that little area uh, or an object we take with us. In other words, the spirits will stay put or you know, trapped inside of an object in a lot of cases. This is a commonality with a lot of uh, Asian horror stories. But I will say the uh, kind of the idea of the Asian setting is very much more 
often in densely populated areas. And I, I've always loved this a lot more because I think it adds more dread and it's an even scarier thought because this implies that in many Japanese and Asian horror movies that there's like nowhere that is safe, right? The idea that you are surrounded by people who would potentially know and, and like help could, you know, the idea of horror happening right on the other side of the wall from you, right? Or it could be happening here and the other side of the wall has no idea, just no clue. There's really nowhere. The idea that there's nowhere you can hide is a is a big deal. So in Western side, in those rural small town areas, there's really nowhere else you can go. But in the Asian slash Japanese side of the fence, there's really nowhere that is safe slash where you can hide. And I I've noticed that difference. And I don't know if I've seen it explicitly said like that, but that's that's something that I lean very I fucks heavy with it. I, I, I think the idea of horror happening anywhere at any time, any place is a much scarier thought than you going to like the other trope in American <laughs> in American horror movies that, oh, let's let's go venture into this old hospital slash high school slash church with, you know, 80 years of absolute shit history of murders and cult shit in there. Well, yeah, that's not really going to be scary to me because, of course, I fucking know not to go in there. What the hell are you doing going in there? I'm not going to go in there. But the idea that horror in, in a Japanese sense is happening. I live at 1A at this apartment complex and there's horror, supernatural horror happening in 1C and I never know it. That's even scarier for me as the one not having horror inflicted upon me. So I, I like the idea of that, that it could happen anywhere at any time. Um, and I think when I said before, you know, in horror films, the spirits are confined to one place or one object. Um, like I've, I mentioned up top that, you know, Asian cultures, the objects sometimes themselves become evil entity that are not haunted by the lost souls of humans themselves. I, again, I think back to Uzumaki. They're really the, the spiral while there is some element of, oh, there used to be a burial ground here, or, oh, it's a lot more complicated than that, and I will not spoil it, because it's, it's really fucking wild, that the very land itself is just, is cursed, and there is no, oh, uh, the, some guy did this, or some group did this, or some tragedy happened here, this, it's, it is just cursed. This is a cursed thing. It always was, it always will be. And you just have to deal with that. <laughs> either, either find your way out or just fucking deal with it. So I, I, I like the idea of the, the Japanese horror has always been a much more, it's been a much more attractive option for me, that formula, where it's more psychological. There is an inherent subtleness to the idea it's very it's left very open ended. Um, a lot of American horror, uh, in terms of the way it all ends, is you know a very finite structure. In a lot of cases, it's either you know thing intrudes or horror commences. Group is whittled down. There is a solution. A bow is put upon the situation. Either sequel bait or we shut it down. There, there it is. When it comes to a lot of Japanese horror, 
it's something that I've always said that I liked in my anime and the way that people do world building is that I'm getting a peer or a peek into a window of a world that happened that feels like it happened long before I came into the picture and will exist long after my time here has left. Made in Abyss is a great example of that. In a lot of Japanese horror, it's the same way with, with the curses or the horror elements in it, right? That these curses, like the ring, the curse of the tape in the ring, has been happening for God knows how long in the original. In, in the ring, the American version, there is like a finite um, like start to it, but there is no perceived end. There's nothing that can be done to stop that. The grudge. You know, it may have had a start point at some at some element or some point in time, but the curse never inherently ends. Right. It, it just goes or it's left ambiguous enough where there is no bow. There's no tidy ending. And I think that's another great element of, of Japanese horror storytelling is that leaving things without a bow is inherently terrifying. Right. But. I think that there has been in, in American horror audiences, a lot of these tropes have been, you know, laid the groundwork to feel, you know, in, catharsis happens when we get the full arc, right? Start, climax, resolution, we leave. And the, the idea of it not ending is, a, is kind of ironic, I find, because if you find at the end of a horror movie, the thing is still around or whatever, whatever uh, face-eating, you know, bullshit monster is occurring in front of you, and at the very end, it's like, rah, jumps at you, and it's not over. The catharsis comes in the form of a second shit movie. If someone tells you that a movie, the horror movie that you liked had a great first act, and then the second one comes out, and was like, oh, it's, it's absolutely shitty, don't watch it. You're kind of just like, oh, okay, cool. You're good with that. Lord knows I am. And I find that interesting that the bow, quote unquote, that wasn't put on the end of the first movie is found in the form of a lack of engagement, knowing that there is still more and there could or could not be a bow on that second part. But we don't give a shit enough to try because the, the Rotten Tomato score was trash. So in that way. I know the thing like with the ring and June on and all this stuff, they got a bunch of spinoffs internationally and a bunch of sequels and stuff, but there is an inherent idea of we're not going to tell you if this is solved or not, because it was said somewhere up top or in the middle that there is no stopping this thing in a lot of Japanese horrors. There just isn't. In some cases, we don't know how long it's been around. We, we know it will happen again. And there's nothing the people we're seeing the point of view through is going to be able to do to stop that cycle from happening. They're just afflicted by it, like all that came before them and you know all that will happen after. That's a very common trope that I notice in a lot of Junji Ito's work, in a lot of the J-horrors that I have witnessed. Um and I, I know there's another one. I think it's called like John the Curse is a really crazy one that has a similar vibe to it. But nonetheless, the way these things end are also quite different as well. So at the end of the day, before I kind of get into some of the fun, more fun tropes of the two that I've noticed and I've kind of uh, 
put a list together uh, that I've mentioned a little bit up top, but I think it's fun to go through them in a list style because I find them pretty funny, especially the American horror ones. I, I will I kind of sum it all up by saying that as someone who loves horror, I, I can appreciate both sides that are taken here, right? The American use of horror is clearly a representation of the uh, the social woes and worries of the time. And they're either trying to capitalize on to can and allow for catharsis of people worrying about the real world ramifications of that which this horror movie is talking about from, uh, you know, worries of things like terrorist acts or of, you know, uh, conservative ideologies being threatened, the idea of the decline of religion and stuff like that. A lot of these big societal stuff are commentated on, and it's necessarily less about change and more about, you know, threats to what we consider to be our norm, right? A lot of Asian stories are very similar in that way, but while I do respect in a, most, in a lot of cases, not all, the American usage of violence, the intrusion archetype, the killer archetype, uh, and its use of violence in a way that actually feels like it's getting to something larger. I do like that. And I, at times I'll reach for it because I think there's a much more at time, less thinky fun, less wrinkly fun to be had with American horror. But with Asian and Japanese horror, I also respect the dread, the subtlety the commentary on, you know, the change that is happening in societal fears are much more widestream. And again, still a threat to the traditional like technophobia around the turn of the millennia with the things like the ring. But it's the idea of things that are already inherent in your safe space being corrupted is a fascinating concept. You have been considering from your TV to your phone to be safe forever. And without warning, without any kind of intrusion, seeming intrusion, there's more of a corruption rather than an intrusion, a rotting from the inside out. And that rot typically comes from some kind of moral decision, some moral ambiguity triggering that, or in some cases, pure curiosity, something that is innocuous. And from that rot turns a space inside out rather than breaking it from the outside in. And the amb amb you know, ambiguity goes all the way to the end as well, where in a lot of cases where American horror, uh, American horror, American horror wraps everything up with a bow. And there is a special kind of catharsis for me in that as well as an American viewer. There is something very special about leaving a movie, not getting that, you know, sigh of relief being left with the possibility and knowing that there was no bow in what I just saw. I will not get any kind of special full circle release, right, of, of catharsis. There's a lot left hanging in Japanese horror. And that in and of itself enlists the dread that I'm often looking for when I want to get absolutely spooked. So some of these tropes to kind of finish it up that I found that were really, really interesting. Um, you know, in a, in a lot of cases in American horror films, there's always that final girl, you know, the, she's the last woman standing um, against a killer or like a threat. And she's almost always pure in nature, you know, doesn't sleep around. The one that in, in those like teenage flicks, the one that's a bit of the prude becomes the hero at the end. 
a uh, strong sense of justice and is the, the fighter never chooses the easy way out. It's very, very common, I would say. There's also uh, <laughs> jump scares, man. I mean, you do see them in a lot of uh, Japanese and Asian horror, but I feel almost as if some of the more trademark ones, they're not met with like, I know this is changing in American horror. There is a very famous scene I love in Insidious where uh, the mom is walking around and the point of view is like a following camera behind her back. And in one shot, she passes through a hallway and there's just an unnoticed little ghost boy that's standing there. And the music, the character, the camera do nothing to acknowledge its presence. And I think the greatest example of this kind of thing that, the, that is just kind of there, this presence is there but not jump scared, is Haunting at Hill House. If you have watched that show and not heard about this or never even heard of this show, in the background of that show, there are like... 45 hidden ghosts that you can see throughout the entirety of the series. I remember seeing like 12 and I looked it up after I finished it and there were three times as many ghosts overall than I noticed and my stomach dropped like, holy shit, what? I watched this scene and I didn't even fucking notice. Oh my God. <laughs> so I, I love the idea of that where something is there the entire time, but you don't even notice it until your second pass. Mm, chef's kiss. Good shit. But jump scares, I get irritated as fuck at jump scares. I think there are, there are some good uses of it, but in American horror, it's so cheap. Nine times out of ten, it just it it always feels to the point where now you can almost feel the vibe, and you can do some subversion where this is where people would put a jump scare, but then we're gonna put it a little later, ha, or a little before, ha, and then like okay, uh, you you just moved around the bullshit, right? I mean, and it's not like yes. Uh, I get like, whoop, like uh, my <laughs> my throat, like, you know, kind of jumps a bit and my heart jumps up into my neck. But and, and I like that sometimes. But I think as I, I'm going to say it right here, you should if you want to write horror or horror comes out and you're thinking about it, just get rid of jump scares. I think you can do so much more with so much less. So fuck jump scares. Fuck them all. Um, I kind of brought it up later or earlier, but I, I promise I'd say it later. Indian Barrier Grounds. From Pet Cemetery, I think Poltergeist, I think Amityville Horror had some of this, definitely The Shining. Um, there's clearly, it had its uses, and around that era of, of movies, there was, um, you know, it, it's kind of to, not tongue-in-cheek, it's very overt about the consequences of colonialism, and uh, usage of it should kind of elicit a sense of, of uh I wouldn't say guilt, but more like consequences for the selfish actions of colonialism that, you know, by getting taking this land, the revenge is found supernaturally tenfold later. Very common thing. And, you know, you got demon possessions. This shit's so common now. And some of them I still think do it right. I mean, hereditary, the conjuring are two great examples. Insidious. Man, I got a fucking bone to pick with Insidious, right? The first two-thirds of that movie are fucking horror platinum gold. Like, we're talking top-tier good shit. The moment, the exact moment that woman utters the phrase, what do you know about astral projection? The entire series goes to fucking shit, and I hate it. Because they had such a good game going. Such a good game. Ugh, makes me so mad. Um, I digress. Abandoned buildings with a history. 
How many times have we heard this one? You hear about it a bit in Asian horror stories where it's like, um, you know, oh, this house, this tragic history happened here. That's all well and good. But in, in the Western canon, you have things like schools, hospitals, mental institutions, all this other like, you know, and, and it's like always delivered in such a way that it's so obvious that it's like you teens should absolutely not go in there at all. You just fucking should. I don't know. At, like, what? No, absolutely not. <laughs> and they're still like that. You know, who who gives a shit about that old hag? And you and to further on that trope, they'll always, you know, halfway through. Oftentimes they'll go back to them as like, we didn't listen. Please tell us how to defeat the monster. Please. Me, 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 me. And they're just like, OK, I guess fine. But like, I told you so. What the fuck do you think you're doing? Like, I, I don't pity you guys like i told you not to do this so that's always been very funny to me um slashers you you know when it comes to slasher flicks you don't have to describe anything more about it there's psychopath killers there's dumb teenagers that are always the popular popular ones they're always doing sex and drugs and that equals death like them doing that splitting up going off you know absolutely you know railing drugs and having sex and boom they're the ones that uh they're the ones that die and gore oh gore Lots and lots and lots of gore. Absolutely. Um, and the final one that I actually really liked uh, to, I think there's a final interesting point of, uh, you know, comparison and contrasting is what I've heard coined as masculine horror in American horror films. Um, it's, it's really kind of like all of these baddies are just like, just, entire towers of men that are just armed with creepy masks, big machetes, or like what have you. I mean, you got Leatherface, Jason Voorhees, Mike Myers. All these dudes are fucking brick shit houses, right? They're huge. They're massive. And they always have like machete, chainsaw. Um, you know, Freddy Krueger is kind of that, you know, pepperoni uh pizza face looking dude who's kind of the exception of the rule, but still kind of uh is kind of like that. My favorite example is Jason X, which is when Jason is in space. I forget the context of how he got there, but he was taken. He like snuck on board or something of a spaceship. They shot him into space and then like they some other thing found him or they shot him into space and then he gets like nanites accidentally put into his body and he becomes a bigger, freakier looking like chromed out monster. It's fucking wild. Um, But on top of that, though, as well, you have in a lot of horror and especially in slashers, you, you have a lot of, you know, female representation is always like half naked girls running around, shredded clothing, fairly explicit sex scenes, very vulgar dialogue. Um, but it's, it's just something about like slashers that it really is diminutive to like female representation in a lot of these things. They do, you know, there have been standouts. I would say Alien is a clear stand standout with Ripley doing her thing. But in a lot of the classic cases, you have the damsel, you have the one that is like running away half naked in the woods and found out by the slasher, cut to absolute ribbons and shit like that. It's very masculine horror in a traditional sense. Where to start off the list of like tropes you find in horror films over in uh in uh, in the Asian slash Japanese category, you have a more 
feminine horror compared to masculine. The it's it's more slow, haunting, a sense of cold dread. It's not this huge like proverbial punch in the face. There are no dude bros like running around screaming with chainsaws held over their heads and like, you know, just gore everywhere. A lot of these scenes that you see, they flow very kind of slowly and provocatively, like from a pure like like cinematography standpoint. And it makes the audience slow down and really think about what's happening. And on top of that, you have, you know, a lot of the iconography in these is pale, pale skin women, long black hair. You know, I think it's from folklore and some from superstition, but these women of terror exist very prominently in Japanese horror. And, you know, like I, the examples that I brought up, like Shudder and Ringu, you know, they they have these pale women, long black hair, uh, you know, icons as characters. And it's there's something very, very piercing about that. It's it, it feels less like a bodily threat and more like a psychological threat, like in 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 a way that I don't. I'm not going to feel pain that my arms are going to get ripped off or some shit. I'm going to feel this like there is this really deep, cold scene feeling that a lot of these movies elicit. And I think that cu- couples with another one that is very common. You see like women scorned in a lot of these Japanese horror films. Um, a lot of them center on a tragedy when a woman is wronged. They commonly come back as vengeful spirits or entities of hate. In Ringu, the you know our main uh, antagonist, she's a female that was murdered. Um, in The Grudge, very similar way. There's there's a uh, I know the women woman in white is a very common folklore in Japanese ghost stories. A lot of this stuff centers around that theme that there these spirits of anger and hate are female, and I think I. I don't know enough at this time. It's worth looking into as well, whether that be uh, cautionary tales of folklore or something that is more modernly grown. But I do find that it's it's rare to see a big standout Japanese horror film that is like a male spirit that has been wronged. And if there is wronging for the male spirit, I've noticed it's almost always from a corporate or familial way. When it comes to women, it's almost always romantic and sometimes professional. For men, it's like, I didn't get that promotion when this guy did and I took my own life. Or uh, my, fi- my, my parents love this brother over me. There's always some kind of like, I wouldn't say superiority complex or inferi- sometimes inferiority complex, but with men, is there is some kind of, birthright or kind of professional right that they have been wronged with whereas women being wronged and scorned it's a lot more personal and i think using women as these vengeful spirits offer a lot more room for a cautionary tale and to inject that morality element that we've talked about earlier and i i think another you know big trope in asian horror films and japanese horror films Huge emphasis on suspense and general unease. You know, like I said, a much less staccato, a much less jump scare. There is an they focus very heavily on atmospheric creep factor instead of like the thing jumped out at you. No, you walk into a space and it 
all of the emphasis is put on this space feels evil, not boo, the evil thing jumped out at you. It's it builds that tension that I think is great. Um, you know, and I think that the instead of like the staccato of like the vulgarity of the visuals and the dialogue is very rare. Um, they they approach it they with a lot more purpose. I think it's not just there to shock and appall. If there is gore, it's almost always extremely relevant to the story they're trying to tell rather than there being this big bombastic way of somebody dying in like a Western horror film just for the sake of seeing the spectacle of it. I'm thinking, I'm looking at you, Final Destination. That's the, <laughs> that's the poster child of this shit outside of even stuff like Saw or Hostel. Lastly, I, I think, you know, the whole thing with horror being open-ended. I, I like the idea more so with the trope of letting the viewer interpret these scenes as they see fit. Um, while American horror, like I mentioned before, it, it always seems to be an outlet for something, an outlet for a thing, um, be it religion, be it political or social commentary or con- like, uh, controversy, um, even things like a, like a tale of personal morality. Um, that's more prevalent to be like, this is our message in American horror, whereas these themes do exist in Asian and Japanese horror. They don't always tell us so explicitly what's going on it's really much more up for interpretation i do remember during that class in college that i originally did this for um we were given two we were given two movies to watch in a genre and we had one that was horror the discussion of what we thought the horror movie was from japan I cannot remember the name right now. It might have been that John the Curse or something like that. Um, but there was way, way, way more discussion around that on what we thought it meant than the American one. And I think that's really indicative of American horrors are this is our message. Be it as simple as blood and gore, have fun, watch some crazy shit, or we're doing a commentary on this thing. And it's really up for interpretation how well they delivered the message or how poignant it was. Whereas in Asian and Japanese horror stories, there is not that clear cut line. They have elements worked in, but what they're quote unquote going after is not readily present up front in your face or intended to never really have that at all. And it's left up to the viewer to make that decision. So that's another common trope that I I often see there so honestly in short i like horror i like horror a lot and i think the the final thing i like to i like to always contemplate and we've talked about it on the show is yes there's clearly differences between western and eastern but why does anime seem to often not always but more often than not miss the mark and i think it's a bit of an identity crisis after doing this research now coming back to it because i feel as though anime has all of the weaponry all of the uh things in its tool belt to actually build a horror that is more suited for a western audience it has the ability to show the the gore the violence and a much more and and crazier shit crazier visuals than you can possibly get with you know live action and sometimes even CGI alone, but they are built for they're built 
for like most anime are a Japanese audience, which prioritizes subtle, atmospheric dread building. So I personally am going to start sitting on the hill that I think anime as a medium actually has more of the tools required to create actual digestible Western horror that is going to appeal more to a Western audience. But that is almost 99 out of 100 times, that is not what anime, by the definition we always talk about, and trust me, Mal thinks of this too, it's not for the audience that it's built for. Western audience sometimes, actually most of the time, does not play well with a Japanese audience. It's not the horror that gets them going. And I think the way, if you're going to build atmosphere with quiet subtlety, a more cartoonish, more animated medium like anime is not going to do what real life would do better for the case of Japanese horror. Japanese horror needs atmospheric creation. And so unless you have top, top tier storyboarders, background artists, which I think there have been cases of this in the past and narratives that you're not going to create a all the time. You're not going to create something that is going to be scary as it pertains to the Japanese audience. I may also be getting to the opinion that in attempting to, and potentially scary to Japanese audiences, when coupled with a non-live action medium like anime, it falls too flat for the Western audience, my Western-ass wrinkle brain. Um, because if you notice all of the remakes, The Ring, The Grudge, there is a heavy coat of Western frosting on that Japanese horror cake when they remake it. There's a lot more jump scares. There's a lot more buttoned up shit. And even when there's still just a crumb of the original idea and at its core left, it still feels so much different. But it needs to be repackaged in such a way that it's digestible to an American palate. So I think when you couple the attempt of making a Japanese style horror in the medium of anime, it's just too far removed from what most Western individuals and viewers are going to be considering scary. We've seen stuff like Dark Gathering that I have watched a little bit more of and I can say really does a better job than most capturing that sense of dread with really good atmosphere. But I think if they, by they, I mean people, you know, studios and individuals who want to write manga or anime, you have to either A, really write something truly special and be a brilliant genius of your craft like Junji Ito, or create something that is more attuned to the Western palette of horror tropes. And I think you could pull off a very interesting thing. Imagine the My Hero Academia of horror. What if you were to really kind of adopt, but then reflavor the the horror tropes of American Western horror and make that the backdrop of something new? I think that would be quite an interesting case. I think you get a bit of that with like Helsing and you do get a bit of that with Castlevania. There's some people that don't call that anime, but. You get a bit of that there, but it's a much more, those are much more actiony. And I think that they've gone too far actiony when they have their horror 
if they just dial it back a little bit further, I think Western horror in anime is much more possible, or at least digestible to a Western audience, than Eastern horror packaged the same way and broadcast internationally. Um, I don't know. I think it's an open question. I don't think anime is devoid of horror. I just think that it has yet to found what, or yet to realize what makes itself great for horror. I do think that's changing. Dark Gathering, shit like that is proving it can be scary for sure. As someone who loves horror, I, I look forward absolutely to seeing that. So that is all I had today. I hope that my ramblings about horror and my thoughts about what make them different uh, was in some way entertaining. And if you uh, out there like horror and want to let us know what your favorite horror movie is and, or your first ever horror experience in your life, were you way too young like me and got scared shitless by the ring when you were seven years old? Or did you not really or do you not like horror at all and want to let us know why? You can jump into the Discord at patreon.com slash ubology. One dollar and up gets you in there with all of our past guests and the lovely Patreon folk. We always have some good conversation going on in there. If you want to like, comment, and subscribe, or you do those things, if you want to listen to us on any platform I know you're on, or you want to take out a little bit of our merch, just a little bit of our merch, all those links are in uh, the description notes down in this episode. But you can also go to ebology.com, our website. Even on there too, there is a little uh, automatic quick uh, say hi to us panel that'll email our uh, email the lab and we will always guarantee to read them. Responses may vary, <laughs> but we do guarantee that we will read those. But I think that is it. Uh, we'll be back to our regularly scheduled programs and our classes next week. But until then, I'm Ricky, just Ricky, and this has been Weebology. Deuces.